0: Hello everyone and thank you very much for tuning in to the first episode of Everything Economic History, the podcast of the Centre for Economics, Policy and History. My name is Andrew Dorman and I'm joined today by my co-host Lloyd Meposa. How are you doing today Lloyd?
1: Hi, uh, yeah I'm doing great, um, exciting times finally, you know we, we're launching our first um, podcast series. Um, yeah so I'm. I'm, I'm of the um, Centre of uh, Economics Policy and History and I am a uh, research fellow uh, working on African business history.
0: Uh, I should have said what I do, sorry, I'm the Research and Policy Officer (laughs) for the Centre and apparently their podcast host. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And um, so for our first episode we thought we'd keep it close to home as Lloyd and I are both renters um, in Ireland. Mm -hmm. Lloyd in Belfast, myself in Dublin, so we've got slightly different experiences I might say. Um, But we thought we'd talk to uh, Mr. Irish Housing himself, uh, Professor Ronan Lyons, who's joining us today. How's it going, Ronan?
2: Thank you, Patrick, for that introduction. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure to be uh, on the podcast and to be the first, at least the first to be recorded, as you say. Maybe maybe even to be the first uh, to make it <laughs> out, into depends on what I say, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. If we need to cut you vigorously, it might just end up in a Best Bits or two Too yeah. Hot for TV.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The director's
0: mm-hmm. Um, So the, for the as this is one of the early episodes, it'll be early enough in the series. Um, we The way this podcast is going to work is we're going to look at one of your papers that kind of discusses Irish housing, uh, specifically a paper yourself and Anne Bromhead worked on called Social Housing and the Spread of Population, Evidence from 20th Century Ireland. But more generally, we're going to have a conversation about kind of the Irish housing market, its history, and why is it that Lloyd and I can't afford to buy a house?
2: Yeah. yeah, and then we you said six hours, was it? Uh, we have six hours <laughs> worth of recording time. Yeah, best to keep it within a reasonable amount of time for somebody Yeah, listening to this on their morning job.
0: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Actually, speaking of, I should probably start my clock. Okay, um, so to kick things off then, um, Roland, a brief introduction to yourself and also how did you get interested in the examination of Irish housing, both past and present?
2: Yeah, okay, so um it all it all started as most childhood traumas do in childhood. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, I was I was born early in the 1980s in Ireland, and uh, for those who don't know what the 1980s were like in Ireland, they were pretty grim. Um, lots of unemployment, lots of emigration. Uh, it seemed like Ireland was on this um, sort of never-ending cycle of just occasional bouts of things being not so bad and then things getting really bad. Um, and about age six or seven, I just asked my parents um, what unemployment was. Um, and they explained it to me, as, as you might explain it to a six or seven-year-old. And I had an initial idea. I said, well, there's a whole lot of empty land here besides... Um, our, you know, I group near Farnham in Dublin, so there's some empty land near at I said, so well, we can't just, you know, some not just build, uh, and I worked it out, if there was five buildings and each of them had, wait for it, 50,000 workers each, that that would be 250,000 workers and then there'd be no more unemployment. At which point my parents thought, okay, we've got to get this guy some actual hobbies and maybe when he's, um 18 or 20 he can look at this so but they told me what an economist was and what economics was and and so on like i guess i put a little seed in there and it was never kind of always the only thing i ever wanted to do i like any kid you know, flirt with being an astronaut or a pilot or the computer in school told me I might be a teacher the visually impaired at one point which i thought was wonderfully specific um, not a teacher, just a teacher of visually impaired. I'm still, I'm still confused as to what questions I answered that, that went down that particular path. But I did actually end up um, studying economics and, and political science in in Trinity as an undergrad. And around the same time, a school friend had set up the and asked me uh, just after I finished my undergrad if I would help out, kind of just looking at what they saw because they had lots of data. This is early two thousands. and and that was sort of going from a hobby to a a business. And so around 2004, I started working um, with with the guys in Daft, and that's been going for nearly 20 years now. And uh, it still wasn't, I suppose, settled, written in stone that I'd be an academic. I wanted to try a few different things, Um, but I did my PhD then in Oxford in 2009, 2013. And I was very lucky that as I finished, Trinity was hiring. Because uh, that was uh, a, that was yet another one of the grim times in the Irish economy, sort of occur uh, with uh, worrying frequency. Um, uh, but I've been working in Trinity for the last ten years. What I had done originally as my my undergrad dissertation and my masters was economic history with um, with Kevin O'Rourke, who's a very um, prominent Irish economic historian, and and that's where the history and the housing bits came from. And when I started in Trinity. Um, I I kind of said, look, everyone has to pick an area to be a specialist in, and um, and rather than having two areas, um, housing and history, I should try and look at, say, London housing markets as an area. Now, I, huh, I I don't know how successful I've been at focusing on one area. Um, I let people uh, look through my um, and and uh, history of, of publications, and has he been focused? Probably not. Um, but I'd like to think of myself if I have an area focused, it's long on housing market. And I think this paper um, that you're going to, that we're going to talk about um, fits in with that. Yes,
1: very interesting. Um, well, I was just wondering, uh, based on your research and uh, maybe uh, the paper that we're going to be talking about today, um, how has the government tried to deal with uh, with the housing problem um, in
2: Ireland? Yeah, it's it's. Um, it's a really good question because it gets to the questions or topics that economists tend to ignore a little bit about how decisions are made and how policy directions are set. For somebody like me, it's obvious there's a shortage of housing, and you need to build more homes. Um, but the system doesn't move quite like that. To um, me, this has been obvious for 10 years in the case of, of um, the republic, that there's been an emerging shortage and it's getting worse and worse. But when I started saying this in in the media through reports or or other work, say 2011, 12, 13, say Dublin rental accommodation, and then it spread to other rental markets and then spread to the sales market. And I could see it happening in sort of in slow motion. At the time, the political system was still trying to deal with the fallout of what had happened in the mid-late big And that taught me a valuable lesson about how policy is made, is that nuance can often get missed, it was very difficult for a political system and a policy system that was that that thought of Ireland as having an excess of homes. There were too many homes and we had built too much in the early 2000s. You know, this was the problem. And there's somebody saying we need to build more rental homes in the cities, notwithstanding the fact that there are um, homes that are not going used in rural areas. That nuance was a was a tricky one. And, and I think that's the short-term. Um, challenge around policy making. There's a longer term challenge, and this is particularly true in the Republic, but I also think it's true in the North as well, that when you have decades or even generations of lack of policy success, that that becomes the baseline. And if you think of the Republic from the 1840s to the 1980s, there wasn't really an acceptable economic model. It was it, the only thing Ireland was good at exporting was uh, was people, really. And um, The North had an industrial base, the North was good at linen, it was good at, at shipbuilding, but the rest of Ireland didn't really have anything, um, at least nothing as concentrated as, as that. So, when the single European market happened in the 1990s, Ireland all of a sudden became at the crest of a wave of investments into the single European market, principally from American firms and has remained so ever since. It remains, it kind got a launchpad for global firms into what is the world's most valuable consumer market. But the, if you look at the population projections um, over the last six or seven censuses, the default has always been to be too conservative not because that the baseline is conservative, but the, even the optimistic scenario is too conservative. And I think that comes from 70, 80, 100, 150 years of lack of success. And I think when you look at housing, somebody like me says, well, we need to build 60, 70,000 homes a year. And the system's like, well, you know, you're know, you assuming things are gonna be successful 50 years down the line. Like, no, there's so many economic crises, how can you be so sure? It's not about being sure about what the level is. It's about having a system that could deliver that if it were needed. And I think for me, the, that's the real challenge around policy, is that only belatedly, in, in the short, let's say, if we look at the last 10 years, only in the last couple of years has it become accepted that Ireland needs lots of homes and and the targets are too low.
0: So we have a situation where the government is too cautious as a result of kind of so many failed attempts in the past and kind of as a they're they're too conservative almost
2: yeah exactly so it, the idea of coming out and saying what if net migration to ireland is going to be 40 or fifty thousand people a year every year for the next 10 or 15 years i say that as a one of the the challenges associated with that like we'll need to build infrastructure we'll need to build housing and so on but the irish system is more set up to view that as oh, your man thinks we're going to be super successful over the next 10 to 15 years. Like, How could he be so certain? And again, it's not about it definitely being the case that we will be successful over the next 10 to 15 years. But 30 years into surprising every single time on the upside, we should be used to perhaps maybe realigning our baseline away from worst case scenario, where the optimistic version is only moderately optimistic. We've Just to give you numbers, in 2016, the population, the optimistic population projection, was was net migration to Ireland of about 30,000 people a year. Um, The the outcome, the truth that there was 10, 20 and 30,000 were the the, the sort of low, medium and high. And they seem quite tightly bunched to somebody like me. There's a lot of uncertainty around that. So why are they so tightly bunched? But even the 30,000 as the the high was well below what actually happened. What actually happened was 35 or 36,000 a year on average accelerating, and even in that, COVID closes for a year, so actually if you think of it as, as one year less, the true number is like 40 or 42,000, um, and in fact migration since the 2022 census has been even stronger again, perhaps 100,000 people have come to the country, including um, a significant number of Ukrainians, and if you don't, if you don't, if you're not prepared for that, then you end up with problems in areas that you think, oh they're, they're great problems to have, problems of growth, but they're still problems
0: that lack of preparedness really is is what this is all about this the need to look at the past and look at economic history etc and kind of look look back
1: yeah i I was just curious um you know because they they there's this massive migration of people uh mostly into the urban center so when we're talking about you know the government being conservative i was just wondering okay if they're building homes Uh, What kind of homes are they building? Are they building, um, you know, apartments or um, standalone houses or semi-detached? I mean, is that, uh, does does that, um, is there a preference? Let's say maybe in Dublin, maybe we need more apartments instead of homes. Um, um, Yeah.
2: Yeah, and it's a really good question. So, if you look at the EU as a whole, about half of the homes in the in the EU are apartments and the other half are houses, roughly speaking. It like, might be 4852 or something like that, but don't say that to 4852. They're cursed numbers in the UK, right? Um, in, in Ireland, it's like 85-15. 85% houses, 15% apartments, roughly speaking. And, and some of that is because there hasn't been the population pressure over the last 100 years. You know, Ireland is the only country to have a smaller population now than... Um, than say 200 years ago and so there hasn't been that population pressure but that is now there and has been there for the last 20 or 30 years and, and there's a key number in the housing system the, the what's known as the average household size the average number of people in the typical dwelling and that's been going down and if you think of it as a population of 4 million people in households of four versus 4 million people in households yeah. of two it seems like a small difference but actually you need twice yeah. as many homes and the homes are going to be different homes you need typically more urban apartments and less um, rural houses. Yeah. And that's the challenge in the Irish system, is that the housing sector has been used to building on greenfield sites, low-density houses, and um, you know, sort of incrementally further away from the, the city centres. And what we need to do now is a lot more infill. And to be fair to policymakers, it's not like they don't know this. In the last five years, they have tried to reshape the system, but it's still based very much on... And actually, it was kind of Lloyd. You used a phrase there. What kind of homes are they building? Kind of almost implying that policymakers are doing the building. But I think that's a key distinction: is that policymakers don't do the building; they they set the system, and that channels the the resources into building. And if you're not channeling the resources into the right place or the right types, and um, then you you as a policymaker are failing. It's not that you should be judged based on the number of homes built and um, directly. It's, but are you making the system? Are you putting in place the foundations that would allow the homes that need to get built, built? Whether those homes are private or public is another question. We can get to that. In fact, I guess that's what we're going to get on as we talk about the paper. Um, but, um, but, but by and large, the homes that have got built have typically been houses. And you know, it's not a popular thing to say in Ireland, but there's, there's too much of a subsidy associated with building a one-off home. That you don't pay the full economic cost of connecting, say, utilities to your to your home, um, and that's that's a problem because that's paid for by someone else, and it's paid for by people who are living in, say, denser urban housing, and that that's a hidden cost. Yeah.
0: So has it always been? Has this always been the case? If we look kind of back further, I mean, your paper starts in kind of 1850s post famine. You know, what's the historical context to the Irish housing situation? I mean, how does it progress at the risk of condensing 150 years of history into the next 20 minutes? (laughs) But um, what is the historical context to the Irish housing situation?
2: I mean, it's a a great question because it's like what you're basically asking me is if I had to write a, a book that was the history of the Irish housing over the last 200 years, what would the main sections or chapters in that be? I'm not asking you to write a book, just the blurb on the back. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, the blurb (laughs) on the back. I I think if you, I mean, let's 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 work it out. I mean, I think the those first decades after the famine, really, it was about what you might call remedial works, right? Trying to get the quality of housing, in particular, in rural areas, up. And that that went on longer than the 1880s, but we can call that from say the 1840s, 50s to the 1880s, 90s. And then it, it it transitioned into a phase which you might call instead of more like instead of remediation, it's more like redistribution. That um, that it's killing home rule with kindness, right? There's a, a push for Irish independence, Irish autonomy, and the response of the government um, was to say, okay, well, let's maybe we can undermine the case for um, autonomy by giving generous subsidies for people to own their own um, land if they're farmers, or to to have their own home if they're labourers. Um, and that's the episode we start with in the in the paper is this these Laborers Acts. The Land Acts are reasonably well known in Ireland um, uh, and indeed to, to economic historians elsewhere. It's a very comprehensive case of redistribution of land in a very concentrated, a very peaceful compared to what happened in plenty of other places. Um, but the Laborers Acts are kind of... Um, the Labourers' act are an interesting one because they've gone under the radar a little bit. Um, I think there was a US publication which we cite in the paper that described them as the world's biggest social housing or public housing intervention um, in the pre-World War I period. Um, And that's the second phase. And then you might call the third phase I'm going to steal from Michelle Norris. um, uh, She's at UCD. She's an excellent uh, analyst of, of Irish housing over the present and uh, over the past century. So you call it sort of asset-based welfare, that that housing, once this subsidy, this redistribution subsidy bit was done, uh, Irish governments could effectively coast on that by um, the the sort of the the leaky buckets, right? You put money in and then you sell the the public housing at a discount to buy votes to keep you in power. Mm. Um, And in particular, the Fianna Fáil government did that, like, power excellence from the 1930s to the 1990s and um, and it's a recipe that's been done in other countries as well um so that asset-based welfare lasted for, yeah from the i'd say the 1930s up to the 1980s or 1990s what what happened then of course was a a, a, a relatively classic real estate bubble um and since then I, I think if you were to give it a name you'd call it the micromanagement of irish housing right the the Policy reacted to what happened in the bubble, effectively by misdiagnosing what went wrong. What had happened was Ireland in the 2000s, 90s and 2000s, had given these tax breaks for building homes in places where there was no long-term demand. And in some ways, maybe they thought it was a bit like the Labour Act, that you could have these long-run effects on places by by putting in these homes. Um, But it didn't work. Um, It was credit-fueled and and um, tax-policy-fueled. misallocation of, of resources to really know over and um, building in Dublin and Corp cities during the bubble and um, it was more or less keeping pace with with demand and um, but the lesson that was learned from that period wasn't well we shouldn't give these tax reliefs um, uh, in places where there's no long-term demand that lesson was sort of learned in a trivial way we've just stopped these reliefs but it wasn't seen that those reliefs had done the damage it was seen that, well, actually, we just let the market do whatever it wanted there. And look what it did. It built you know, six stories in these rural towns so that are never going to need six stories. So from now on, we are going to sit on top of absolutely everything. And one of the reasons we have a policy system that consistently underestimates housing need now is because this fear exists that... If they don't sit very tightly on these numbers, then everything's just going to go haywire, and we'll be back to two thousand and three or two thousand and five again. As in my view, misdiagnosing what happened in those years.
0: So it's I kind of often suggested that the um, the Irish government kind of forgets about. It's very Dublin centric, and they tend not to look at beyond the pale <laughs> to use that term. Um, but what you're almost saying is that they they over not over invested in the rural sector, but um, perhaps without building up the rural sex, they put houses into it and now they're almost... What's the opposite of reaping the rewards? Reaping the famine?
2: <laughs> reaping the costs or whatever, yeah. Um, look, I, I guess every every part of every country thinks they're hard done by, by the national policymakers. Um, but when you look at, 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 at the history of Ireland and the history of Dublin, Dublin is a smaller share of the population today than it was in the 1960s and if you said that to most people around they wouldn't think that's true but if you look at the census numbers it's true so why do we not think it's true well one of the reasons we don't think it's true is because you've got people commuting really long distances to go to jobs in Dublin so Dublin has continued to grow as a share of employment but it hasn't grown as a share of housing and, and what you might say regional policy has been Incredibly successful at containing the growth of Dublin. There's this narrative in the politicians in Ireland that Dublin is too big. Which of course, if you were to any other country in the world, the idea that a city of whatever one and a half million people is somehow too big is kind of farcical, but that, that Dublin is too big. Dublin might geographically be too big if it goes into Port Leash and Arklow and Gory and up into Cavan, absolutely. But that's that is the reason that's happening is because you've stopped building homes where the jobs are. Now the, uh, a politician would say, well, what we'd love to do is get the jobs and move them around. But Dublin doesn't compete with Drum Chambo for, you know, location of jobs. It competes with Geneva or Singapore or wherever it might be. So it's not a case that you can just, uh, and it actually gets to what we call kind of agglomeration economies, like this, the, the benefits of club which we, we talk about in the paper. Um, mm. the, um, the 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 if anything, I think partly has been anti governor or anti-cities um, for for the last say half century to our cost as a, as a country.
1: Yeah yeah. Um, so in your paper, uh, one of the one of the objectives was to ensure that there isn't a lot of migration from the rural areas into the city, right? So that's why there was this um, you know social housing uh, for rural laborers. So I was just wondering, um, how did that impact uh, the the rural economy as a whole uh, in terms of production? Was there improvements in production because maybe uh, the laborers had, you know, um, steady housing, um, or it was the opposite? Just want to know how it impacted the the, the economy at that time.
2: So yeah. I mean, I- so the Labor's Labour's Acts were, and maybe it's no no harm I just give a brief description of, for people who are who are listening. The Labour's Acts what it meant was that you could basically compulsory purchase land that a, a large landlord had, and there were these um, particular uh, designs of homes, very high quality homes for the time, um, and they were subsidised. So that, so a subsidy would come from the direct kind of from the central government in Westminster. And, uh, and then there'd be um, certain rents charged. So they were, they were getting uh, a, a rent that might have been half the market rent for a home that was perhaps twice the quality of the private market. And so it really tilted the balance if you were, uh, oh sorry, the other bit was they were targeted only at agricultural labourers, people who owned no land. If If you were a farmer with land and you were covered under the Land Acts, the earlier Land Acts, these were to try and capture the next group. And this was the group most susceptible not just to migration to Dublin or Belfast, but to migration to other cities outside of the island. So these yeah. people were going to Liverpool or London or Boston or New York or wherever it might be or USA and <laughs>
1: yeah. Um,
2: yeah yeah exactly and um, and 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 that was the thing that the, the there's a phrase that we have in the paper about keeping people rooted to the soil uh, and that's mm-hmm. what that they they, they they used that phrase at the time to, to try and uh, tilt the calculus that people had in their heads right well if I I'm living in squalor here. If I go to Boston, I know because my cousin's over there that I can get a good salary and my children will have a future. There was trying to change that dynamic. And and what we found was that there's there's no obvious kind of it's it's not a quick win. These districts didn't suddenly become rich overnight because you had all the subsidised housing. But what we found is that there was a persistent and growing effect on these areas over time and to do that we try and compare rural districts with other rural districts that are kind of similar in observable ways but like share of agriculture culture, distance to cities and so on and and the the effect keeps growing long after the scheme ends the scheme it finished in 1915 because uh, World War one came along and the, you know everything had to basically be re-diverted to the war. And by that stage, they kind of run out of agricultural labourers to house. They've expanded it to other labourers. This was a very, very um, widespread scheme. Um, Over 45,000 of these colleges were were built by the end. And with that effect, it's there when we see it. So we're comparing sort of every census from 1911 on and you can see it, it there in 1926. It's there in 1936. It's growing each time and it keeps on growing till the 1970s. And that tells us that it's not this sort of quick win that you get, that you change the real rent in the area and you make a good quality housing cheaper and that's where the win happens. It's much more about by keeping people in the area, you keep an extra couple in this generation and they have a family and then they stay and it sort of multiplies over, over time. And that, that small-scale clustering, because these are rural districts, that small-scale clustering seems to have mattered all the way through, you can see it as late as 2002. And um, 90 years on, you can see the impact of these. Each college has something like um, uh, 15 to 20 extra people in a district. Um, 90 years later, which is uh, an effect well beyond the size of the college itself. Um, and 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 that to us is is. The impact on the local economy is through clustering and probably through clustering when it comes to things like um, public services. So a big one, we identify in the paper schools that if you've got two districts that are side by side, one got these colleges, one didn't. um, And as a result, it has a bigger population when they come to consolidate the schools in the 1950s and 60s. That, that then acts as an attracting factor for the next generation of people choosing where they live in the 1960s, and 70s and 80s. And so that multiplicative effect, I think, is it's, it's a rural paper, but actually it's, it's uh, under review of the Journal of Urban Economics because it's getting at this, this clustering bit. Uh, okay.
0: So yeah. is there any instances of this sort of policy being deployed elsewhere? I know there's that, I think Jane Allmire's expression of Ireland being a laboratory for empire. Um, Now, I know that perhaps we're dealing with kind of pre 1920s Ireland here, so technically it is under British rule. But what did, was this strategy deployed in other parts of the empire, even in other kind of states at the time?
2: No, and I think that gets to so the economists always think about internal and external validity, right? Internal validity is are these results True. Like, is there something we're missing that you know that the conclusions are actually valid in and of themselves? Uh, and I'd like to think that after as 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 long as we've been working on the paper, that the conclusions are internally valid. We've kind of torn them every which way, and they they're still there and they're clear. But the external validity is an interesting one because this is a scheme that happened. In a very unusual set of circumstances. You had one, the main bit of a system, so, so Britain inside the UK, effectively trying to bribe rural Ireland to stay, you know, to, 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 to stay in the union. And as a result, they were prepared to invest an irrational amount of money in subsidizing housing, which they were not prepared to do. In their own cities, they weren't prepared to put in this kind of housing in British cities, or indeed in Belfast or Dublin. Dublin had some of the worst slums in Europe um, in the early 20th century. Arguably, it would, the money would have been better spent on on subsidised urban housing in, in Ireland rather than subsidised rural housing in Ireland. But these were these, this was done for political reasons, and I think that gets to why it was so hard to to it would be so hard to replicate in some ways. That, that even Ireland, when it became independent, wouldn't have invested this kind of these kinds of resources in a, a goal that it would have absolutely signed up for, you know, and um, rural subsistence, you know, maintenance of rural communities and so on, just because of the cost. The cost spread over Irish taxpayers would have been too great. It spread over British taxpayers was was doable because the Irish rural population was as small as it was, and that's a, a sort of. You know, what's the point of looking at this, this exercise then you know, or this episode then if, if it's not externally valid? We're trying to get at you know many many things can have similar effects. So if we can identify what happens when you in this case just do a shock to housing supply in, in an area, what might the medium to long-term effects be? There's a whole debate about people and place. I think it can contribute to that debate, but I, I and we could certainly say to people you could you could try and do something like this, but I suspect that uh, most politicians would balk at the cost of, of doing this. if they had to do it now.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to add uh, on on uh, on that, and you know, just an extension of uh, Andrew's question. Um, you know, African countries after independence tried um, a lot of housing programs and. Um, Zimbabwe and South Africa uh, and Malawi tried rural housing programs, but they were slightly different um, because uh, for, for these countries, the whole point was to give people land, you know, farming land after, you know, um, apartheid or, you know, um, colonial governments. Um, but there, there seemed to be problems with how they executed their housing programs because they were problems with um, money just disappearing? Monitoring, you know, um, the the whole scheme, you know, uh, just the whole management. And I, I'm just wondering um, if during that period, um, period of your study, if there were any sort of challenges
2: like that in monitoring the scheme. It's a very good question because it 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 really relates to what what I was just saying in the sense that. One of the challenges of even if you could get politicians to agree to spend a very large amount of money on a very targeted program like this, and when there's a large amount of money involved, all the incentives start to crumble, right? As you say, it becomes really a challenge to make sure the resources end up where they're supposed to go. So, you know, for all that you can, for all that an Irishman might say about the British. They really did love their paperwork, right? And that, that helped us in this in this study. But uh, they changed the rules in 1906 um, uh, in in response to uh, a couple of things. But one of them was a concern about effectively um, the legal profession making out like bandits from the scheme, um, that that you could just sort of uh, conjure up a dispute and then offer to go to the courts, and then the, the taxpayer would have to pay. And um, so they're, they're actually information on um by district on how much money was spent in legal costs um, mm. uh, and how much was spent in building or engineering or design or um, uh, general fees. So they could look and see if there were any districts that were sticking out. and. Um, it, I mean, I've already sort of almost said the British were good at something, so that's going to get me in trouble with one group. I'll get myself in trouble <laughs> with another group by saying that the areas, if I remember correctly, the areas where there were the um, the biggest number of, of unusual things happening with the distribution of money was actually in Ulster. Um, so there we go. I've annoyed everyone. I've annoyed <laughs> everyone now.
0: <laughs> it's a cross-border initiative, Ronan. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, you know, uh, it's still on, um, on the lever X, Right. Um, I, was, I was just wondering, uh, how bad was unemployment um, in larger cities during this period? For instance, Dublin. Because um, the next question I want to ask is, if maybe unemployment was high in the urban centre and there seemed to be incentives for rural laborers to get housing, did we see or, or were there people moving from the urban centre, looking for jobs in the
2: rural areas, so that they could also benefit from this programme. I think the, the thing with Ireland is that it is so open from a labour point of view that if you thought, so if you're in Dublin and you feel there's not enough opportunity for you in Dublin, you wouldn't consider rural Ireland, even though they might have this generous housing scheme. You just, you know, I'll look at a British city or I'll look at an American city. More or less every family had uh, access to information and often access to, to capital. Like they could get the fare sent back from the States um, uh, to, to send over to the family member. Uh, and that was the the, the default move. But you're, uh, the first part of your question um you know, if, if if we're talking about kind of the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, Dublin was not an easy place to get work. It, it was not a And Belfast was because you could if, certainly, if you were Protestant, it was easier in and uh, to get work. But generally, you could find work in Belfast because it had these industries. Whereas Dublin didn't really, it, it had the Guinness Brewery, which was huge. It was, I think, the biggest brewery in the world um, at that point in time. And you know, a couple of other um, large employers, but compared to any other city, any other major city in the in the British Isles, and um, it, it it didn't really have anything like the clustering that went on in in Sheffield or in in Manchester or in in Edinburgh, or Glasgow, whatever it might be, and and and, and that. For that reason, you actually have Irish people turning up in all those, in all those cities in, in Britain, as well as in the States and Australia, actually, as well.
0: Willing or otherwise. Um, you, you kind of alluded to this, but how, I'm curious about the feasibility of these kind of schemes nowadays. Um, what kind of numbers are we talking in terms of the actual investment? Like if, if one was to you know factor in inflation in today's money? How much is being poured into uh this um uh, if you can estimate?
2: Yeah, okay. So th- that's a really good question. Let's see if but I can put ballpark- it in
0: children's hospitals. How many
2: <laughs> <laughs> um let me put it in in, in ballpark terms? Like if you if you were to do this now and say you picked like um rural towns like so outside the main cities now you wanted to look at um Athlone or Sligo or Carrigan Shannon or, whatever, or NS, whatever it might be that kind of tier of towns where like politicians will be open to that like let's get more people living in those towns um you're you're talking about a subsidy that um you know makes it the to build reasonably dense housing now might cost roughly four hundred thousand euro uh, a home, and you're talking about a subsidy that could be one hundred and twenty to one hundred and fifty thousand um, in that. Now that might sound huge, and it is huge. As it happens, the um, the national government in 2021 or early 2022, I think, introduced a scheme called Criconia, um, which means the heart of the home in uh, in Ireland, I think. Um, uh, the But the uh, the subsidy was not far off that amount. It was concerned that apartments are only getting built for renters, they're not for people who might want to buy an apartment. Um, the viability challenge is significant, that this is what it costs without profit and without land costs to build all these apartments, so they're not going to get built. So it was willing to, to stump up a significant amount to get owner-occupied apartments Built and um, now that scheme has sort of suffered a little bit because you no know, sooner had they announced it than everything started going wrong with the inflation and construction costs and um, that the war had started in Ukraine, which exacerbated pressures that were already there post-COVID, and um, pushing costs up. So I'm not sure how many homes are actually going to get built for that scheme as it as it as it was originally designed. Um, but it goes to show you that that in some ways money is not necessarily the problem it is it is the problem at first pass right in in the Irish system viability of 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 homes and um, it's there's no lack of willingness on the part of of and um, the government to spend money in fact they're, they're sort of embarrassed by riches at the moment there's this unexpected corporate tax revenues coming in and like what are we going to do with them and people are saying you do lots of things with them including housing but it's, it's not about a shortage of money' it's, it's it's about a system aside from the money that is failing um it's it's failing to give certainty around when you can build homes and what homes you can build and it's it's failing in the design of um the public housing schemes or, or, or at least subsidized housing schemes yeah um
1: seeing as it is that you know like time we we, we we might be running out of time i didn't uh, I, I i had a question. Um, you know about the data that you use. Um, how difficult was it uh, to get this data, uh, or even to clean it? Like, how long did it take you? So, so
2: this is one of those like it's become one of these standard things now, where you 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 find these archives, and then you're like, okay, what what can we do with this? And um, there are there are amazing records that, um, as I said earlier, the 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 UK. When from when it was set up in whatever 1801, it it really 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 liked having records of things. Um, like you, you, I can tell you the number of dogs that were transported from Ulster to Scotland by year in the 1820s, and then it's that level of detail. Now, having said that, there's lots of stuff I would love to have measured at the time that didn't get measured. But once something got on the list to get measured, it, it tended to get measured a lot. And for things like this, with a lot of public money being spent, the records were were, were there. Obviously, we benefit in the 2020s from a lot of the stuff being digitised, parliamentary papers and so on being available now through through databases. So we were able to get um, six or seven iterations of these returns by district that look at how many colleges were built from, say, um, the 1890s through to the 1910s. And and as it happens, uh, not to try and and flog a paper that hasn't been written yet, um, but there's also really good information on on the disease and deaths by cause at the district level by year, which we think is connected to this. Historians have said that these colleges came along and improved the sanitary conditions for the agricultural working classes. And if that's true, we should see a reduction in the burden of, of contagious diseases. So we actually have the data on contagious diseases, so it it, uh, it it takes time and effort, and we've been working with um, a Digital Data Divide, which are kind of professional data entry um, uh, companies, sort of social enterprise that that train people up as they as they learn um, as they as they enter data. And so we've been working with. So it's it's reasonably standard data entry work, but it is intensive, and it's not something that myself and Alan could have done. Uh, Twenty years ago, without the digital files and without access to really good data partners, and I should say as well, um, we've had research assistants. And actually, today is is Leah Hauser's last day. Um, as, as my research assistant, no doubt she's she'll be delighted never to see um the, the rates of infectious diseases by rural districts for 1886 ever again. Um but um but people like Leah have been hugely helpful in, in in making this happen. It's it's one of those things, it's a lot of work to make sure the data are what they say they are and that they're done to the right standard, especially when you're working with numbers. Working with text is kind of okay because sometimes you can fill in like you can't get a letter right, but you can get it by by implication. But is it a three or is it an eight at the start of the number
0: that really has quite a I have a question about data, which is a little bit more pernickety, shall we say? A little bit Go first. Modern. So how do you calculate the value of a house and why can't Lloyd and I afford a house? Yes. Just to finish things off.
2: Yeah. Um, so... If I can spin the quest, that first part of your question on its head a little bit and say, okay, so if you were looking at a home mm-hmm. and you said, what is its fundamental value? N- normally we think of its fundamental value, which of course should be related to what you might be willing to bid for us. It. It's fundamental value should be related to its rental value because like, the rental value should capture the value of the service and sort of nine, nine times out of 10, if you present me with a context, that is going to be true. One of the challenges, at least in the Republic, is that the rental market has become this sort of—it's um, uh, it, like a caricature of itself. In that, it's it's a narrower and narrower market based uh, relative to the base. So you you you've people trading properties less and less often, and that drives the market rents up quite a lot. So now I would say that you got to get the market rent probably discounted a bit before you multiply it up to get the fundamental value. But this, the standard rule of thumb would be you'd look at the rental value and say, OK, usually the capital value is in what you'd be willing to bid for. It should be something like 20 to 25 times the annual rent. That's not to say you can never go above that, but by going above it, you're probably taking on a little bit of risk that may be fine for you, but just know that that's what you're doing. It depends a little bit on the property and so on, but if you're if you're able to get a property for less than that, for fifteen times the annual rent or ten times the annual rent, you're probably getting a good deal, um, it, you know, by the the sort of the international standards of of what a property is 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 worth. And I think that kind of um, if people had thought like that more in the early two thousands, um, both north and south in Ireland, because both had a, a a sort of a, a, a pretty vicious housing bubble, and um, I think. The case, there were cases of people bidding 50 times the annual rent or 60 or 70 times the annual rent but they didn't think of it in those terms they're like i oh, just see these prices going up that's that must be the price of this property but actually what is it worth fundamentally is is tied to what its rental value is now the second part of your question um ireland north and south is it's, it's a bit of a cliche for people who who work in the space but it's at the end of a long supply chain it's a small island typically served right like if you need 10 units for the british market what would happen is they'd send 11 to britain and the the 11th would get sent on to the island of ireland and 10 would stay it's a sort of like just a sort of a land bridge so this became quite um topical with brexit that how is ireland going to get supplied with stuff and um, if if Britain was going to be a Lambridge anymore, and of course there's lots of direct connections now for ferries and um, to to France and Belgium and the Netherlands and Spain and so on, and that's great from a, a diversification of risk point of view, but to go back to the, the core questions, why is it why is it the case that Andrew and Lloyd can't can find somewhere to buy? It comes back to how expensive it is to build. There's two elements really: what is getting the ability to build is very unclear in Ireland and in the UK system and um, th- knowing what you can do in a particular site and how long it will take you to do it is not clear unlike say, the Danish system or an Austrian system or many systems around the world where it's clear what you can do in a particular site and the, the obstacles someone coming along and saying I don't want you to do that and um, aren't there and um, so that's, that's one element and the second element is around the cost of if you had a site and you knew you could build on it it's very expensive to, to build those homes. And, and at least some of that we talked about earlier, going back to the themes of Ceph, and we talked earlier about the um like the long shadow of, of history that, that decades of population loss have made on Irish administrators quite conservative in their outlook with un- unexpected consequences when it comes to things like planning for housing. There is the shadow of the Celtic tiger as well, not in but to some extent in this you know oh if we don't let them if we let them build they'll build all sorts of rubbish everywhere that it's not needed Say people who've never been on an investment committee like go to an investment committee in new york and convince them that you want to build uh they, they should fund you building a six-story building in leetron they're just not going to get in the door and let allowed out the door with the money and um, but One of the things the tax credits did is they supercharged um, the Irish construction sector north and south, driving up costs. Um, The the, the northern costs are definitely below southern costs, but in, in the south, those costs are still high to this day, almost 20 years on. Um, as a result of what happened in the in the Celtic Tiger, and that means that even if you zero profit, and zero land costs, and you could take away taxes, zero taxes as well, you still wouldn't be able to build a home in say Athlone or Sligo for anything close to what people would be willing to, to to bid in the market for it. And I think that's the fundamental challenge. If you're a policymaker how do you get costs back down? Do you even view that as your responsibility? And for too long, and um, they haven't seen it as their responsibility. They've seen it as the sector's responsibility, which in part it is. But if you're the policymakers and you care about the outcomes in the system, and, the, and for 10 years, the system hasn't been giving you what you want, then you need to go in and figure out what's going wrong.
0: I'm not sure whether to be inspired or not by that. Um, probably, <laughs> I'm going to scroll through to half now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, it's on the rental side, it should not take too long at the moment. There are not
0: too many us. <laughs> Painfully accurate. Yeah. Painfully accurate. Yeah.
2: Okay, I think
0: that's all the time we have. Uh, Lloyd, unless you have any further questions? Um, no,
1: not really. Uh, but, but just to say, I mean, economic history can actually show us over time how we've come to this point, because we've talked about, you know, uh, how the Irish government, um, you know, how it's policies you know where mostly housing policies were mostly in the rural areas and how that also kind of like affected you know in the future the 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 housing market so i think um economic history is relevant um you know when we're looking at our contemporary problems
2: yeah you know absolutely i don't think you could understand housing like i, I do work on the us housing system at the moment over the long run and I, I, I don't think it'd be impossible to understand what happened after the nineteen eighties if you don't understand what happened before the nineteen eighties. And it's a sort of a break a break point there. And and to understand that properly, you you need to and even if you're only interested in modern day outcomes, knowing the history I think is super, super important. And in this case, I think you, you can't understand the, the Irish housing system now without understanding where it came from. Um yeah. and, and hopefully we've we've touched on a little bit of that today. Yeah. yeah
0: in that case then thank you very much for joining us Uh, thank you for listening Um, and we'll look forward to seeing you at the next episode uh, whenever that may be so thanks again Rona if you enjoyed the discussion and you'd like to keep up with everything the centre is doing including public events courses and workshops please visit our website at cef.ie or follow us on social media links will be in the episode description finally thanks again to our Fund of the Higher Education Authority of Ireland